This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Our next guest is Mari Fulcher. Hello, Mari. Hello, James. Welcome to the podcast and the conversation. Nice to be with you today. Thank you for joining us. Before we begin our discussion, could you please tell our listeners uh, something about yourself? Well, I have been involved with CNIB since 2001 in the recording studio. Um, I briefly uh, did something like this about 50 years ago when CNIB was still operating out of Hamilton and recording on reel-to-reel tape. This digital stuff is much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I enjoy doing it um, because I enjoy the challenge of taking the word off the page and making it resonate for the listener. And you learn a lot while doing it. Oh, absolutely. And work with some amazing people. Mm -hmm. Staff here are great. Wow. Um, You know, as I asked our previous guest, we're going to start with a definitional question. What is science fiction to you? Well, science fiction is one of those categories in which you can throw a lot of apples and oranges. But for me, um, what intrigues me about it is that the writers of science fiction tend to take something that's sometimes quite ordinary, sometimes not, but they speculate and they try to get at things in an unexpected way. It's the unexpected things that that usually intrigue me. For instance, When I was planning to do a PhD, I was planning my thesis. I eventually abandoned it and decided I wasn't going to do it. But um, what I was interested in was the nature of truth. And I was interested in it from the perspective of philosophy and from the perspective of literature. And on the literary side, I was going to look at science fiction. Um, I was going to start with David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, which was published, I think, hmm, around the mid-20s, 1920s. And um, one of the things that he did was he talked about a spaceship whose pilots were disembodied artifacts um, deep in the bowels of the ship, so they had no no visibility, no vision. And uh, their navigation directions ran along sort of the lines of two and a half parsecs left of that smell of rotten fish. But don't forget to avoid... Um, the siren song and steer widdershins around it. And the reason I was interested in that sort of thing is what Lindsay was doing really early in the 20th century was talking about biological computers. Mm. And so at that point in time, that was a really strange and interesting perspective. So not algorithms, biomimicry. That's the kind of thing that fascinates me about science fiction. So you were originally interested in epistemology, mm-hmm. the, the foundation of knowledge. Yeah, but more specifically, drilling down to the nature of truth. Nature you know that thing you get where you all of a sudden you read something and go, huh, exactly right. Mm-hmm. Now try and explain to me why you think it's exactly right. And sometimes you won't be able to. You just respond to that sense of veracity. Yeah, a, the poet A. E. Houseman was once asked to define poetry. Mm-hmm. And he said, I cannot, but I can recognize it the way a terrier recognizes a rat. Exactly. 
that was what I was interested in because philosophy's take on, stru- on truth is quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, what first hooked you on science fiction? What drew you in? Was it a particular book? Uh, was it a film? What was it? That's an interesting question. You're taxing my not-too-reliable memory these days. <laughs> um, I have always read wild, <laughs> wildly too, but I've also um, also read widely since I was a kid. And I think I just came across science fiction. And I think my criterion is I like a good story. Mm-hmm. And whether that story is science fiction or any other form of fiction, I'm perfectly happy with it as long as it's good writing and it's a good story. Good dialogue, good characterization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are what interests you. But you're enthusiastic about the genre itself. I am because I like the speculative aspect. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of taking something, often something that is very current, mm-hmm. and looking at what's likely to happen, mm-hmm. what its history might have been, mm-hmm. how that history might have changed. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, that's the aspect of it that appeals to me. It also explores the nature of being human. <laughs> what does that mean? And the number of answers it has come up with to that question are legion. Yes, they are. Why do you think the genre is so very popular, so widespread, so influential? I think um, because it resonates uh, for a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. people with enormous range of interests, and it serves that enormous range by producing an enormous range of approaches. Um, it's also, you can you can read science fiction for kids, and then where the language is very basic. Mm-hmm. Um, you can read science fiction um, by, for example, Ian McCune, who I'm going to talk about later, where the language is very sophisticated and very layered and dense. And so if that's what you like, that's great. You can find it in the science fiction genre. Um, particularly interesting, I think, is the way it takes current concerns and works with them in various ways, um, particularly now when there are more women writing science fiction. It has changed the, the landscape, it hasn't has. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A great deal. Yeah. Brought something something very different to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, in your opinion, are there any spiritual dimensions to science fiction? I think I need a more detailed well, question there. Well, perhaps it would be uh, to relate it to what I mentioned earlier about discussing what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of transcendence. Hmm. One of the things that, you know, sort of the space opera type of science fiction does is literally transcends Earth mm-hmm. and takes people to other planets, other spaces, other ways of seeing, other ways of living. Mm-hmm. Transcendence in that sense. Spirituality, a lot depends on how you define that word. Yes, because of what I've noticed in, in the science fiction I've read is that it's almost... Um, it, you know the story between uh, the mathematician uh, Laplace and Napoleon? That's one uh, I'm not familiar with. Well, uh, Pierre Laplace, a great French mathematician, wrote a five-book 
um, um, uh, study of the um, orbitary, uh, orbital movements of uh, the solar system. Mm -hmm. And someone told Napoleon, before Napoleon went to meet Laplace, that there was no mention of God in all those five volumes. So Napoleon thought he would tweak Laplace a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. prod him a little bit and said, you know, Monsieur Laplace, I noticed there is no mention of God in this big book of yours. And Laplace looked at Napoleon and said, I had no need of that hypothesis. <laughs> and that seems <laughs> to be what done. a lot of science fiction is as well. It has no need of that hypothesis. Well, I mean, there's, there's interesting aspects of Frankenstein that you can place <clears throat> exactly. in that. Yeah. Exactly. In that uh, discussion. <clears throat> we'll get to that in a minute. Yes, we will. Because the two books you've chosen to talk to us about. Uh, one is a, a book uh, by Ian McEwan called Machines Like Me, mm -hmm. and the other is uh, Mary Bish uh, uh, Shelley's Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, mm -hmm. and the similarities between the two, thematic similarities. So And differences. Uh, and differences as well. So why don't we jump right into that? And okay. I'm going to let you take over and talk to us about that. All right. So... Frankenstein, as you say, subtitled The mm. Modern Prometheus, and Shelley published it in 1818. Um, there's also a third edition um, with an intro by Mary Shelley, which is kind of interesting in itself. Mm. The epigraph is really, I think, important. It's from Paradise Lost by John Milton, and it is, Did I request thee, maker, from my day to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promise me? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Machines Like Me, subtitled, and People Like You, mm. by Ian McEwan, which was published in 2019. So there's 201 years between these two books. Um, the epigraph for Machines Like Me is from a poem by Kipling. Interesting in itself, because Kipling is generally not lauded for his poetry. This one is called The Secret of the Machines. And it's, the epigraph he chooses is just a couple of lines, um, which are, but remember, please, the law, and law is capitalized, by which we live, we are not built to comprehend a lie. So, that is that's fascinating. the two books. Yeah. Um, McEwen is not normally seen as a science fiction writer. What intrigued me about this and why I chose these two books is because Frankenstein has been called the first science fiction novel, Arguable, but we'll go with it. Um, and in Frankenstein and Machines Like Me, Shelley and uh, McEwen are dealing with the same set of issues. So what I was interested in was to see how the passage of 201 years has changed the way that these two writers deal with these things. So why don't, why don't you talk to us about the commonality of those issues? Well, I will get to that. <clears throat> okay, sorry, don't want to rush you. <laughs> um, but I think because, you know, sort of people may not have read these books, particularly mm -hmm. uh, Machines Like Me, which is published this year, I figured I'd just give you a quick plot summaries of both of them. Good idea. Um, make it easier for you to understand where I'm coming from. So, Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein uses science, galvanism, which we'd now call electrophysiology, to create life, the creature. 
i.e. he steals the role that properly belongs to God. Horrified by the result, he rejects the creature, importantly not because it's evil, but because it's ugly. So, the creature, now called the Fiend, seeks revenge for the rejection by killing everyone Frankenstein loves. His brother, his wife, his best and only friend, and few others. So Frankenstein chases the fiend across the world, seeking revenge in his turn. Frankenstein dies without killing the fiend. The fiend mourns over Frankenstein's body. Basically, if only you'd loved me, if only you'd taken proper responsibility for me, none of this would have happened. And then heads off into the icy wastes of the North Pole to die alone. So evil and its perpetrator have been vanquished. You can also do a much shorter summary of of Frankenstein. Seduced by science into hubris, Frankenstein sins by creating life, thereby disturbing the balance of nature. Everybody, both innocent and guilty, dies because the natural order must be restored. So Mary Shelley via Shakespeare's tragedies, Mm -hmm. the fatal flaw of thinking that you're above the rules. Hubris, yes. Yes. So that's Frankenstein. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. For those of you who haven't read Pay Machines Like Me. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so it's set in London in 1982. So there's lots of anachronisms, i.e. things that are out of their time. The primary one being that Alan Turing is still alive and active in the AI and machine learning field. The protagonist, Charlie Friend, buys one of the 25 artificial humans just introduced to the market. They're named Adams and Eves, and Charlie buys an Adam. I understand because all the Eves were already taken. (laughs) The Eves were gone. (laughs) And most of them were in the Middle East, yes. Um, There are several plot lines. This is a really complex novel. Um, Adam's development as he lives and learns with people, Charlie's changing relationship with Adam, Charlie's changing relationship with his upstairs neighbour Miranda, later girlfriend and eventually his wife, Charlie and Miranda's plan to adopt Mark, an abandoned child, Miranda's framing of Gorringe, the man who raped her best friend Mariam, and that rape resulted in Mariam's suicide. Charlie's ultimate destruction of Adam, he smashes his head in with a hammer, because Adam threatens to turn Miranda into the police for framing Gorringe, and that would destroy their possibility of adopting Mark. Alan Turing's involvement in the development and manufacturing of the Adams and Eves, and all of this against the fragmenting social fabric, riots, protests, political strife, unemployment, of the UK in 1982. The tale is told by Charlie as a first-person narrator. First-person narrators are always unreliable, but this one is even more so because he tells the tale retrospectively from 30 years in the future, i.e. in 2012. The story is told via the characters and the good characters. Um, McEwen is an excellent writer, but it's really a novel of ideas. The idea is swirling around the ramifications of the relationship between artificial intelligence and machine learning and human nature. And the definition of what a human actually is. Exactly. 
So these ideas are many, complex, and interrelated, and it's it's a you know moving, um, moving matrix all mm. the time. Um, so this is a really complex novel. It's densely layered and there, st- st- mm. and stylistically sophisticated. So in machines like me, unlike Frankenstein, nobody dies. Mm-hmm. Except Adam. But the question of whether or not Adam's destruction is murder is left open. May I interject here with a question? Is Adam fully self-aware? Another question. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about this novel, it poses many, many questions and provides very few answers. Well, that's unsatisfying. <laughs> it's a very I mean, one of the one of the the differences between them is Frankenstein is very is very close novel, yes. very traditional. Yeah, um, and, uh, and, and and machines oh, like me is completely opposite. And very remarkable when one considers that uh, Mary Shelley was eighteen when, when she, she wrote, wrote it. it. <laughs> yes. Well, some of the things in Frankenstein you sort of go mm. oh, and then think well she was only eighteen. Exactly. <laughs> she learned. Yeah. But so that's um, that's the two um, the two novels I want to talk about today. Okay, good. Thank you for that summary. That that was very helpful. Um, so now we'll talk about the similarities between the two, the commonalities. The commonalities. Um, you know, when I started doing this, I came up with a list of possible topics. Mm-hmm. The number of topics was above forty. Mm-hmm. We only have an hour. Yes. (laughs) We're going to edit it down to less than that. So um, what I have chosen to do as opposed to look at similarities as a category, then um, differences as a category, is taking the things that I find important in terms of the issues they look at and look at them in both similarities and differences as I go along, if that would be okay. Sure. Yeah, we're in your hands at this moment. Right. So, well, for me, the uh, the most obvious commonality is the definition of humanity. Is Frankenstein's monster human? Mm-hmm. His grievance, the monster's grievance, we want to characterize him as a monster, is absolutely legitimate. His creator has rejected him. Mm -hmm. He loves his creator. But unfortunately, he has an irresponsible creator, someone who doesn't value him. And as a matter of fact, rejects him on the basis of the superficialities of his appearance. Mm -hmm. That's bound to piss anyone off. (laughs) (laughs) Correct? Yes and no in this novel. Yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, I think it's significant that um, Frankenstein nominally rejects him on the basis that he's ugly. Mm-hmm. Not evil, mm-hmm. ugly, because at this point he isn't evil. No, he isn't. As and a matter it's of arguable fact, whether he ever is. As a matter of fact, his nature was very loving and childlike to That's begin right. with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, really, the... The issue is not so much the nature of the creature, but I think what Shelley was interested in was why uh, Frankenstein would have created such a creature, who is never in the novel called a monster. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think um, it's also an issue that's of interest to McEwen. Because the problem is that science rewards exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Exceptionalism leads to hubris. You know, I'm exceptional, the rules don't apply to me. Which tends to lead to recklessness, i.e. creating a creature, um, stealing that right from God and doing so. Um, and then irresponsibility, and that's where Frankenstein ends up, being irresponsible. He's horrified by what he's done and refuses to deal with what he's done, basically. And the creature, um, as you say, is innocent. Part of A large part of the novel is taken up with how he educates himself so he's no longer innocent in the Blakeian sense. Um, but... Uh, and he learns through that process. Frankenstein, on the other hand, doesn't ever learn. He chases the creature across. I mean, the creature eventually sort of takes his revenge um, by killing everyone that, uh, that Frankenstein loves. So Frankenstein sets off chasing him. Um, he loses him on a couple of occasions, but the creature leaves clues. Um, so he wants to maintain that relationship, even though he has been rejected. Sounds like very much a parent-child relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of the issue of in both novels about what does parenthood mean? What do you owe to your children? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there's no sex in Frankenstein. No. Um, in Machines Like Me, there's lots, mm -hmm. but no kids. Mm -hmm. So no children in either book. Right. One of the similarities. Um, so there's arguments around, you know, sort of what do you owe your creations? Yes. Whether your creations are natural children or different. What are your responsibilities? Yes. Right. Now, let's try to relate this to the android Adam. Mm -hmm. Do you see any similarities? And I, I have to say, I have not read McEwan's book. Do you see any similarities between Adam and Frankenstein's creature? Well, one of the interesting things is that because uh, Frankenstein is very straightforward, it's very clear who's responsible mm -hmm. and who's being irresponsible, and that's Victor, Victor Frankenstein. In Machines Like Me, um, the issue of who's responsible for creation is much more complicated. Um, one of the reasons why... Um, you can, I think, <laughs> refer to Machines Like Me as a science fiction novel, is because in both these cases, the science is fictionalized. Um, in Frankenstein, it's supposedly galvanism, mm -hmm. and galvanism is an effect, not a mm -hmm. method. Mm -hmm. um, and not much was known about it at the time. Right. It was new in 1818. So Congratulations we really have, to the 18-year-old Mary Shelley that she even knew right, about and, it. And we have to judge her book by the science of the time, what yes. science knew at that time. That's right. right. But even then, what she did was mm -hmm. take an idea and played with it. Mm -hmm. um, for McEwen, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you are familiar with the um, P versus NP equation. It's ringing a bell, but... Uh... <laughs> it was absolutely new to me. 
Um, and McEwen via Turing does do some explanations about what it actually is, which I'm not going to try and explain because I looked at it and went, what? Um, but that's okay because in the novel, um, Turing has solved this equation and it is on the basis of that work that the human replicant, Adam, has been created. So this However, is just this is mathematical logic we're talking about. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. However, the P versus NP equation in actuality is one of the seven um, problems up for the Millennium Prize. So the first person who actually solves it gets a million bucks. So he's taken something that is real and played around with it, in this case, assumed that Turing, who was not alive in 1982, has solved this problem that has, in fact, not been solved. Uh, just curious, does McEwen explain how Turing avoided committed, committing suicide, which, which he did? He decided that there's lots of stuff about persuasion from his friends as to why he wouldn't go through, he didn't want to do the chemical castration. Mm -hmm. um, and then he eventually did in order to avoid going to jail. Yeah. And, and at and that point, he just went on with his life, did not right. commit suicide. And since you mentioned chemical castration, we have to explain for our listeners what, what that is all about, because Turing was, was um, prosecuted for his homosexuality. Right. And chemical castration is um, treating that person. Um, with various hormones mm -hmm. to reduce their sexual drive. Yeah. Oops. Yes. Um, so that's chemical castration. Mm -hmm. um, it did, in fact, he did, in fact, do that. He didn't have a choice. Um, and he later committed suicide, we think. There's a possibility that it might have been accidental. Mm -hmm. That he may not have tried to commit suicide, that he may accidentally have eaten an apple that was contaminated. But McEwen deals with his situation. It's, it sounds like a fascinating book indeed. Oh, it is. There are, there's so much going on. It's just mind-blowing. So when I earlier asked you if Adam, the creation mm -hmm. in McEwen's book, was totally self-aware, I assume, you have to assume that uh, the, that creature passed the Turing test of self-awareness. He doesn't actually directly deal with that. Mm. Um, he sort of fudges that aspect of it. Adam um, comes with, with basic operating system. And then um, the person who buys him and the fact that he's bought is significant um, because buying implies that you can do whatever you like with your property at Right, that there's point. no personhood there. Right. Mm. Um, where was I going with that? Um, Self-awareness, Turing test. Right. Um, so he comes with a basic operating system, um, but then the person who buys them, um, him, has the opportunity to create his personality. Ah. Basically with a question and answer kind of thing mm -hmm. that they chew online. Um, and one of the things that happens is that Adam decides, because he's, he fancies the, the girl upstairs, he's going to invite her to do half the personality. And so all kinds of ramifications occur from that. 
So Adam had enough self-awareness and personhood to rebel against his owner. Yes. Um, Adam, unlike Frankenstein, comes with a kill switch, a little button at the back of his neck. Mm -hmm. The fact that Frankenstein's creature does not come with any version of a kill switch, I think, is an index of his of Victor's irresponsibility, because even the golems had ways of turning them off. Mm -hmm. um, but the creature doesn't, and that's part of the problem. Adam, however, does, um, and Charlie uses it a couple of times, and then Adam decides that that's not going to happen anymore. Charlie tries to use the kill, the kill switch but halfway through the novel and Adam stops him and accidentally breaks his arm at the same time. And we discover that of the other 25 um, Adams and Eves, um, there are quite a few of them that have disabled their kill switches and there are an even greater number of them that are committing suicide in various ways. Well, I'm sorry, that sounds like self-awareness to me. That sounds like personhood to me. Yes, that's certainly. One of the interesting things about machines like me is that McCune rarely comes down on one side or another of the argument. He leaves it up to the reader. He leaves it up to the reader, yes. Um, he also makes interesting use of Turing as going back to your previous question about creators. Because Adam buys the creature, but the creature, in this case Adam, has been manufactured, not by Turing, because Turing takes his solution to the P versus NP equation and puts it out as open source. Ah. So the there are issues going around about, is that wise? Mm -hmm. Because the Adams and Eves are manufactured, we don't ever know who they were actually manufactured by. Um, they're sort of shadowy organizations. Seems to be partly, seems to be PNP, public and private mm -hmm. uh, consortium that has built these things. And later on in the novel, after um, Adam is destroyed, um, there's quite a lengthy section um, where... Adam takes, uh, Charlie takes Adam back to Turing. And there's a discussion about what he has done. And Turing admits in a sort of sideways way um, that uh, getting these 25 Adams and Eves out into public and dealing with people um, has been a failed experiment, failed field experiment. So there's some understanding on his part that he is partly responsible for what has happened. This seems to me very much a novel about ethics. Hmm. We're talking about responsibility. We're talking about responsibility toward our creations. We are now at a point where human cloning really is very possible. Mm-hmm. What would be our responsibilities? In theory. In theory, but you know what? Theory very quickly turns to reality in this well, world. Well, that's one of the questions of this novel. Yeah, yeah. Does it? Mm. Like one, of the, one of the anachronisms mm. um, in this novel is that um, by 1982, driverless cars were all over the place, mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. 
until there was excessive sunspot activity and the whole of southern England turned into a parking lot. So the unexpected ramifications are things like that, because at the point in time where the story is being, where the events of this story are taking place, there are nowhere near as many driverless cars on the road as there were. Well, and if Charlie we, if drives we, an old banger. There, there are always um, unexpected consequences. Mm -hmm. Anytime um, we, we try anything. Yes, but if you're dealing with hubristic irresponsibility, they're often not seen. Mm -hmm. or their possibility is not taken into account. Yeah. No. All, yeah, very true, very true. But nevertheless, we'll keep doing it as a species until mm -hmm. we, um, you know, we try to anticipate everything. Uh, if we're responsible, we attempt to uh, anticipate everything, but it's impossible. Well, that's where Turing ends up in the novel, basically no. saying, you know, we bring these things back, we'll reprogram them, we'll, we will retrieve what we can. Yeah what the machines have not destroyed utterly. Um, and we'll go back, it will keep doing it till we get it right. Well, that sounds like a, a very interesting book, fascinating theme, and uh, I, for one, intend to read it. You will and I'm sure it. many of our listeners will now be intrigued. Yeah. It, Especially it, given that we have barely touch the surface of everything that's going on in here. Exactly. Now, is there anything else about either of these two books you'd like to, to uh, tell us about? Hmm. I don't know. How, do we have another 10 hours? Well, <laughs> all right. Well, I'll tell you what. As I told uh, 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 our previous guest, this will be a continuing, mm -hmm. continuing series because apparently it has generated a lot of interest. Good. Um, I'm going to ask a, a final question of you. Can I just deal with your previous question quickly before you do that? Oh, I'm sorry. You, uh, please, <laughs> listen, listen, listen to this because you said you needed 10 hours. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, one of the interesting things that's going on um, here is the brain-mind problem. Ah, right. Um, in Frankenstein, it doesn't arise because there was no concept, no idea of the concept. Um, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, mm -hmm. was you know, the wisdom of the time. Um, although it was over 100 years old by 1818. Um, but um, definitely occurs in machines like me because the technology to build an, a convincingly human-like robot has been mastered. So Charlie comes with an efficient working brain. His mind is the problem. Because the reason for his eventual destruction is that he cannot deal with humanity's, mm, what's the word I want? Foibles. Foibles <laughs> is one of them. Um, he simply, you know, cannot deal with the fact that, that people lie. Hence the epigraph of the novel with Kipling's comment about machine is not designed to deal with lies. Mm-hmm. And what um, Turing refers to as humanity's other cognitive failings. Yeah. And none of the replicants who are not actually called robots and they're not called androids, wedges around with that as well, um, none of them can cope with people. But the point that Adam makes at the end 
he writes um, he writes haikus all the way through. It's one of the ways that he he enjoys. Um, let's see if I can find this. One of the ways that he enjoys um, art and learns through it. And Miranda, interestingly enough, realizes that what he's doing when he's writing haikus is using that very uh, limited form, very short form, but very challenging form mm -hmm. to try and express his own experience, not to express what people do when he has learned. Mm -hmm. So um, I have this somewhere and I cannot find it. What he basically says is that, um, I mean, one of the open questions of the novel is if we go down this road, are we going to get to the point where, he, where the machines will replace us? Yeah, it's one of Stephen Hawking's concerns as well yes, exactly. with artificial intelligence. And this whole uh, idea of the mind-body uh, duality, yeah. mind-brain duality. Mm -hmm. Well, I have not yet seen an example of a mind without a brain. So um, No, but that's not the issue. <laughs> it's whether, you know, one, um, it's not whether one can function without the other. They clearly can't. But which one of them will come out on top? Well, and Charlie's last, Adam's last haiku basically says, we failed this time, but we can reprogram, we can come again, we can do this again. Humans only fail once. I will draw one final parallel. I'll add one more book and make, make it a bit of a trinity mm -hmm. uh, with the, the two that you've already talked about, and that is Philip Dick's um, uh, Blade Runner. Oh, yes. The replicant in there, Roy. Mm -hmm. He's another one in search of his creator. Yes. And when he finds his creator, what does he do? He kills him. Yes. So this is an old and apparently very vital theme. Exactly. Because it's a metaphor for us as a species. Mm -hmm. In search and of the how creator. We, and how we deal with um, our ability to... Um, To do with this, hmm, let me rephrase this, how we deal with our ability, our ability to create new science, new technology, then what? Having done that, often because it's interesting and neat, and it might solve a few problems, also creates other problems, and how do we deal with that? How do we as human beings relate to the advances in technology that could replaces. Mm -hmm. Well, it's another problem with evolution, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Will we, will we, our technology outstrip our maturity? Nicely put. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mari. This has been fascinating. And I know our listeners are intrigued or will be intrigued when they listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I found it an absolutely fascinating novel and, you know, sort of looking at the same set of issues 200 years apart. And there are more similarities than there are differences. A conversation, I'm sure, that will be continued. I hope so. It was most enjoyable. Thank you, James. Thank you very much for your contribution to our discussion. You're welcome.
For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.